0: This week, seven of the most prominent women's rights activists in Saudi Arabia were detained by security forces. In fact, we only found out about it on the first day of Ramadan, and we found out about two more today, taking the total to nine, as far as we know. These are some of the most respected women's rights activists, not only in Saudi Arabia, and not only in the Arab world, but in the entire world. They're also probably the most committed people to nonviolence in Saudi Arabia, and they're not just rabble-rousers and troublemakers. Five of the nine have PhDs. They're experts, academics, and pillars of Saudi society. Even the men who were arrested were involved in women's rights activism in some kind of supporting role. So it's clear that this was a calculated move to completely shut down all women's rights activism in the country. We tried to get a few Saudi voices to appear on this episode, and they couldn't. Not because they were afraid for themselves, but because they were afraid for their families. An eerie silence has descended over Saudi Arabian feminist uh, social media. It used to be one of the most interesting social media spheres, and now it's totally silent. Women's rights campaigners have been shutting down their accounts en masse. There's actually only three left on the Twitter list that I use to monitor Saudi Arabian activists. And everyone is terrified that they'll be the next to be arrested. And unlike previous times when Saudi feminists were arrested, there's a vile campaign on social media happening simultaneously and in the official media, slandering them, demonising them, and calling them traitors, making it clear that this time the government does not intend to let it go. It probably intends to end their careers in activism for good, or at least to put them away for a long time. I said that nobody could join us, but one person was willing to stick her head above the parapet, my British-Saudi friend Sahar.
1: I'm Sahar Al-Faifi, a civil rights activist.
0: Because it's so important to stand in solidarity with them at this time, we're going to read out their names and tell you who they are, particularly since so many people in the West have only heard of Ra'if Bedoui and Mara sharif and while we respect them, the Saudi activist scene is far larger and it's so dynamic and it deserves to be known. Dr. Imanan Nijven?
1: She's a professor of linguistics and an author and a blogger. She's the author of the Saudi Women's Blog. She led the driving ban campaign in Riyadh in 2013, and she was previously been harassed and interrogated by the authorities. She has written for many international media outlets, including the New York Times and The Guardian. Lujain al hadrul Lujain Al-Hadroul is a well-known young women's rights activist who was previously detained in November 2014 when she attempted to drive into Saudi Arabia across the border from the UAE. In February, she attended the 69th session of the UN Committee on the Elimination of Discrimination Against Women in Geneva. As soon as she returned to Saudi Arabia, she was detained at the airport, then transferred to Al-Hayr prison in Riyadh for three days, then placed under a travel ban, barred from social media activity, and prevented from completing her master's degree in the UAE. After her latest arrest, she's currently the only one held with no contact with her family.
0: Dr. Aisha al and Madiha Al-Ajroosh.
1: Dr. Aisha al and Madiha Al-Ajroosh, they're both veterans from the early 1990s movement for women's rights, some of the earliest Saudi feminists. Dr. Aisha is the godmother of the Saudi women's activism, In the guardianship campaign, she contracted a Saudi legal jurist to review all the religious bases of the state's laws requiring a guardian's permission. She donated all her wealth to educate and empower Saudi women and has also coordinated community workshops for women to promote women's rights. She's 70 years old and reportedly in frail health after a heart attack last year. Madiha is a psychoanalyst and an artist. She took part in the first women's protest movement for the right to drive in 1990, when 50 women were arrested for driving and lost their passports and their jobs too. She has participated in all the women's movement and is well known for her support of women's survivors of violence inside and outside the state.
0: Professor Aziza al
1: Aziza al youssef is a retired lecturer at King Saud University in Riyadh and a businesswoman. She is a leading campaigner for the right to drive and to end the male guardianship system. She participated in defying the driving ban in Riyadh in 2013 and was previously being harassed and interrogated. She appeared in many media outlets and was outspoken about the state's restrictions imposed on women. She tried to set up a refuge for battered women and girls who are not accepted back from the government social care institutions by their families, but the authorities refused her application. Over the past years, she was called in repeatedly for questioning and pressurised and prevented from commenting on the royal order allowing women to drive, which she helped win with her activism. Last Thursday, a Saudi journalist contacted an official in the royal court to ask why Professor Al-Yusuf had been arrested. And the official replied to let them know that no one can twist the arm of the government. So it is a form of revenge by the Saudi authorities for having been forced to yield to pressure and allow women to drive.
0: Dr. Ibrahim Al-Mudamir
1: Dr. Ibrahim El he is a famous Harvard graduate lawyer and supporter and a legal representative of activists in all women's rights campaigns and other cases of prisoners of conscience. He handles activist cases pro bono for many prisoners of conscience. The authorities forced him to close down his Twitter account last November and, was, and arrested him this week whilst leaving the country for medical treatment.
0: Muhammad al-Rabia,
1: Muhammad he is a young writer, a youth social activist, and a supporter of women's rights campaigns. He started a literary salon for young men and women in Riyadh. He was previously harassed by the authorities for supporting women's rights to drive.
0: Abdul Aziz al-Mish'al.
1: Abdul Aziz Al-Mish'al, he is a businessman and philanthropist who wanted to support women in establishing a shelter for domestic violence survivors. He doesn't do public advocacy.
0: Thank you so much for joining us, Sahar, and for telling us about these incredibly brave people. Now I'm joined by Iyad al-Baghdadi. So we're taking some of the questions which people have been sending in to you all day, trying to understand the Saudi situation, Iyad. The first one is: um, What is the reason for them to be banned from driving in the first place, and how is protesting this treasonous? Seems quite a reasonable question.
2: Well, it seems like a reasonable question because uh, it seems because it's very unreasonable to for a country to ban women from driving. Uh, But I guess to answer this question, we have to kind of give a little bit of historical context. Uh, I think most people who would be listening to this podcast would know. That Saudi Arabia happens to be one of the most socially conservative countries in the world now it also happens to be one of those countries that have that has seen some of the the fastest and the most impressive uh, social evolutions in in recent decades. if we look at the status of women in in saudi arabia mid century let 's say mid twentieth century 1950s or 1960s we will see that a very, very small proportion of the country's female population were educated or literate at all. However, after decades of social progress, uh, we are in a situation today where Saudi men and Saudi women, particularly young Saudi men and Saudi women, have around the same levels of literacy. And in fact, there are more Saudi, young Saudi women graduating college than young Saudi men. So the the whole thing about patriarchal system, where women are controlled by men, it might have been more convincing in the mid-20th century, for example, when the status of women actually was inferior. However, in today's world and in today's society, it's absolutely ridiculous. Women have achieved parity with men. It just happens that the Saudi regime is, is dependent upon this kind of tradition and this kind of social control. Suppression of women is a factor in so many dictatorships, and particularly in the Saudi regime. And it might be shocking, but it's not surprising.
0: What's the shape of activism in countries like Saudi Arabia, and how does it differ from other countries?
2: Well, uh, activism in Saudi Arabia is marked by heavy usage of social media. And I have to put that in context. Uh, keep in mind that Saudi Arabia is not a normal country in many in many ways. Of course, it is a dictatorship. Uh, there is no pre- f- uh, freedom of press. There is no freedom of association. Uh, but importantly, it's also a country which is highly modernized uh, when it comes to uh, usage of technology. And this happened. A lot of this happened after the Arab revolutions of 2011. Uh, Twitter and social media in general became very very popular. In fact, in 2012. I believe it was July, between July and August 2012, that the penetration rate of Twitter in Saudi Arabia increased by 3,000%. That's 3,000% increase in a single month. By the end of the year, by the end of 2012, Saudi Arabia was ranked the country with the highest penetration of Twitter in the world at above 40%. More than 40% of the population of Saudi Arabia were on Twitter. So what this led to is... A blossoming of an alternative public sphere, the public sphere of newspapers and city squares, that was not available, that was closed. So an alternative public sphere opened up on social media, particularly on Twitter. And this became a very important element of Saudi activism.
0: The next question is, is there any official story as to how these women were quote-unquote treasonous? And how detailed is it? Does it rely on false quote unquote facts, or is it just illogical assertions?
2: Well, it is definitely illogical. It is illogical to nab the the most prominent, the most nonviolent pillars of Saudi activism and basically say that they're traitors. Of course, it is the same story that we've seen many in many places where any kind of international legitimacy, any type, type of contact with the outside world, any type of work on organized work as, as NGOs, as registered NGOs, becomes a cause to call you traitors, uh, to accuse you of foreign contact. It is of course a ridiculous story, and as shocking as it is, it is not surprising in this region.
0: What is Vision 2030, and what's this whole hullabaloo about the reforms in Saudi Arabia, and why are they being done?
2: Well, if you recall, the first episode in this, in this podcast was about this very topic, Saudi reforms and, and the Saudi 2030 vision. Now, to summarize a very long episode, that was our longest episode, uh, Saudi Arabia is a regime that is non- unsustainable. It is politically unsustainable, it is socially unsustainable, and it is economically unsustainable. And it is unsustainable precisely because it has changed so much. The social contract that existed in the 1950s is no longer valid with the population being so much more advanced socially than before. The economic model upon which the Saudi state was, was based, which is windfall gains and unlimited resources as a result of oil sales, is no longer sustainable. Now this has been known for a very long time. Many Saudi experts said for a very long time that this situation is unsustainable and deep reform is needed. However, monarch after monarch came and did nothing about it, until MBS came along and he saw this vision that Saudi Arabia needs to be transformed into a post-oil, post-religious state. Now this seems, on the surface of it, it seems wonderful It seems that this is great because this is exactly what Saudi Arabia needs to actually transform into a normal country. However, very soon we found out that MBS's plan is not so much to liberalize Saudi Arabia, but rather to turn it from an abnormal dictatorship into a normal dictatorship. Let's call it the China model or, or the Dubai model. Maybe the Dubai model fits more. He wants a country which is economically open, economically transformed, but with no political rights, zero political rights. So this is what the reforms were. MBS went on a charm offensive, meeting uh, uh, American celebrities, business makers, business leaders, and he used that to sell his vision. And then he comes back to Saudi Arabia, and within a couple weeks, he's arresting and shutting down the women's rights movement inside the country. Unfortunately, repression is part of the DNA of this regime. And when they say they want to reform, they mean they want to extend their rule rather than liberalize and allow more freedoms and allow more contribution from their
0: citizens. Another question is, was this a political move to appease hardliners or his own choice because he is a hardliner and he, need, he feels the need to pretend to be moderate? Well, by all means, it seems that MBS is not particularly religious.
2: But it's very important to note over here that this whole story about the moderate monarchy, which is always trying to play a balancing act against uh, hardliners, people start to trust a, a certain element in an authoritarian regime, thinking that they're the ones who are keeping the regressives at bay. In the end, both the hardliners and the moderates are invested in the survival of the regime. In the end, they're both jailers of the society. So to answer the question, Yes, MBS is actually at war. He is at war with hardliners because he wants complete control. He does not want to share power with any elements, being members of his own family or being the religious conservatives or being even
0: his own citizens. Another question is, why did this happen? Is there a reason behind the timing?
2: So these are actually two questions. I'm going to answer one after the other. Why did this happen? Why did he have to go after the most prominent and the most successful women's rights activists in the country? So let me refer you back to the quotation that uh, Ahmed and Sahar referenced earlier in this episode. Do not think that you can twist the government's arm. You see, the Saudi regime wants to pose allowing women to drive, allowing women to go to movies, etc. they want to pose it as a gift bestowed by this all benevolent king that he is graciously allowing these women to drive rather than this being posed as a result of their activism. That is because if it is posed as a result of the str- their struggle, they're, they're going to appear to have won their right. They don't want them to appear to have won their right. They want them to appear to have been granted this right. If this is posed as them winning their right, then this is going to incentivize more activism. This is, this is going to say that activism works. The Saudi regime wants a pliable society, a society that simply obeys and it does not dissent and it does not try to negotiate with those in power And it does not try to advocate for its own interests.
0: I don't know if you've read uh, George Orwell's 1984 recently, but someone references it in their question. Uh, He asks, do you think the Saudi people are becoming just like the outer party in 1984, where the government just accuses people of treason and suddenly they are judged to be traitors by the masses without due process? So basically like a witch hunt.
2: Uh, Well, this is a valid question, given the orchestrated propaganda campaign that you referenced earlier. It is important to note here that a lot of this propaganda is actually manufactured. The propaganda accounts are most likely fake accounts, run out of a troll factory somewhere. Of course, this does not mean that there aren't actual voices who are in the employ of the government and in the pockets of the government. However, the majority of this propaganda is not organic at all. It is manufactured. This is what dictators do. They shut down the public sphere, they silence everyone, and then they fill it with their own filth.
0: The next question is, what unintended consequences might come out of the arrests?
2: The unintended consequence in this case has to do with MBS's plans themselves. MBS wants to open up Saudi Arabia. He wants to bring international media into Saudi Arabia. He wants to bring, he wants to build an entertainment sector in Saudi Arabia. He wants to bring theatres, he wants to bring companies, he wants to bring tech companies, he wants to bring celebrities, he wants to bring singers and artists. So the question becomes, are these companies and are these artists and are these celebrities, are they fine with cooperating with a man who suppresses women's rights activism so viciously and so ridiculously? The unintended consequence, in other words, is that MBS's reputation as a reformer may suffer so severely that it might actually make it difficult for him to implement his Vision 2030.
0: We have a few people asking a very similar question. Uh, Any way to contribute directly to legal defenses? How can I help? Is there any hope for these brave women to be released unscathed?
2: Well, many people are asking how to help. And the thing is, uh, this is actually quite winnable. I mean, as, uh, as arrogant as MBS is, and as severe as this move is, he, he actually cornered himself here. Because as we mentioned, MBS actually needs the international legitimacy in order for him to implement his Vision 2030. Keep in mind that the Vision 2030 is not just another vision. It is almost right now a social contract. It is the contract between him and the Saudi population. It is the reason why he is in power in the first place. So if he does not succeed in transforming Saudi economy, then this is not going to work. His power base itself is threatened. However, by moving in these women in such a brutal way, and in such a filthy way, he's actually risking so much reputation damage that it might actually make it difficult for other companies, for for world companies, for world celebrities, for world artists to actually work with him and to actually come and make this vision work. What we need to do is to ensure that the reputation damage that MBS sustains by going after these activists is so severe, so severe that he has to make a choice, release the woman so that so that his Vision 2030 can work at all. What we need to do is to make the success of Vision 2030 dependent upon him releasing these women. By making sure that every celebrity in the States who met MBS and celebrated him, be it Oprah Winfrey, be it Bill Gates, be it Richard Branson, all of these figures who celebrated MBS, met him, shook his hands, sat with him, they need to come out and speak. And if they do not speak, we need to shame them into speaking. We need to shame them into caring about about those amazing women. If we increase the reputation cost of what MBS wants to do, which is to shut down women's rights activism, we can win this. This is winnable, and it's worth winning. Vision 2030 is important not only for Saudi Arabia, It is important for the entire world. Security, stability, and peace in Saudi Arabia is important for the entire world. Vision 2030 needs to be saved from Mohammed bin Salman's authoritarianism.
0: This was an unplanned emergency episode, with Sahar joining us from her home at short notice. For biographies of the activists, we relied on Saudi human rights organization Al-Qust. That's A-L-Q-S-T. Repeat, A-L-Q-S-T, no vowels, al You can find them on Twitter, and they have a website. We normally end by asking for your feedback, but this time we're asking for your support. Nobody should be fine with standing by while these amazing women's rights activists are assaulted. We're actively looking into what we can do, so follow us on Twitter for updates, and do your best to make some noise about their situation.